Hello, world, and welcome to Extra Shot with Alicia Fernandez-Miranda. That's me, author of my what-if year, ex-CEO, sometimes intern, coffee-obsessed mom. Extra Shot is a podcast, a talk show, an advice column. It's that and more, but really, it's about bringing some energy, enthusiasm, and insight into your day. Join me and my incredible friends, authors, actors, activists, and even other people whose jobs do not start with the letter A, for a half hour of laughs and delight. Because we all need an extra shot of something. Ahoy, everybody, and welcome back to Extra Shot. I am your host, Alicia Fernandez-Miranda, because who else would I be? I got to tell you, I am having so much fun recording these interviews. I hope you're having fun listening to them. If you're having even a fraction of the fun that I am, then I think I'm doing what I set out to do. And today's interview was no exception. I was so excited when Brandon Presser, a real-life explorer, agreed to come on the podcast. It has been years since I've connected with Brandon. We went to college together way back in the day. And I came across an article he had written for Bloomberg. He writes a column called Pursuits, where he goes behind the scenes in these sort of lifestyles of the rich and famous service jobs. He has worked on a super yacht. He's worked on private jets. He's worked on a cruise ship at Disney World, my actual dream internship. And this article that he wrote recently was about his time spent this summer as a club concierge in Ibiza. You are hearing that correctly. That is a real job. And Brandon just goes, he like rolls up his sleeves and gets in, and then he writes beautifully about these experiences, which is a good thing for all of us. So I couldn't wait to talk to him. I know summer's over, but travel is always on my mind, as are adventures. And this was a fabulous chat. If you listen through to the end, you're going to get some top tips about travel. Brandon answered all my burning questions, or at least most of them. He very kindly did not respond to my question of whether or not he needed an intern. But Brandon, if you're listening, the offer is still there. I come with references. All right, let me tell you about Brandon. Called A Rough and Tough Adventurer by Entertainment Weekly, Brandon has visited over 130 countries. He was the star of Bravo TV's travel series, Tour Group, and is the author of The Far Land. He currently writes for a variety of influential publications, including Bloomberg, Travel and Leisure, and Vogue. Brandon earned his stripes as a professional nomad in Paris while working at the Louvre, in Tokyo as an architectural apprentice, and in Thailand as a scuba diving professional. He then became the youngest person to join the coveted team of writers at Lonely Planet back in the days of analog travel, penning dozens of guidebooks to far-flung destinations. If you were a Lonely Planet holder like I know I was, you might have taken one of Brandon's books somewhere with you. Originally from a small town in Canada, Brandon holds a degree in art history and architecture from Harvard University. He speaks fluent French and can order food in eight other languages. His current obsessions include moleskin notebooks, K-pop, and sandwiches. Brandon, I'm just so glad you did this with me. And everyone, welcome to this interview with Brandon Presser. Welcome back to the latest episode of Alicia calling up friends from college and asking them to be on her podcast. Brandon Presser, thank you for joining me today on Extra Shot. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. This is kind of my new life strategy, actually. I just reach out to people. I'm like, you're cool. We haven't talked in 20 years. Come be on my podcast. And so far, it's working. 
I love it. No, it's great. I'm so I'm so glad to catch up. This is going to be like a mini reunion for us. Too. It is. I know. <laughs> I started our conversation before we were recording with like, so what have you been doing since college? Which was a hundred years ago, basically. But actually, you have been doing some extremely cool things since college. And you came on my radar again. I follow you on Instagram. I obviously like salivate over all the adventures you get to go on, many of which we're going to hear about today. But I became obsessed with your pursuits column. So why don't we kind of start there? Tell us what what you do. Yeah. What have you been doing for the last 20 years, basically? And what are you doing now? So I think, so we'll start, we can kind of work backwards. But uh, one of the things that I do right now is I'm a columnist at Bloomberg and our luxury division is called Pursuits. And I do a column for Pursuits where I take on a job in luxury hospitality and I report on what it's like to do that job. So you're getting a little bit of lifestyles of the rich and famous. You're kind of getting micro dirty jobs and it kind of all comes together in a variety of different ways. So I was a butler at the Plaza Hotel in New York City. I've worked as a deckhand on a super yacht. I've worked at a high roller casino in Vegas. I was a personal shopper at Barney's and I do these jobs for about a week and I find out sort of two things. You know, what is the secret world of a legendary brand? How does a brand come together to, you know, be so famous and so coveted? And the other part, which I think people like a little more, is uh, rich people behaving badly. (laughs) I mean... So I don't know if you've read my book or seen my book. You you probably have not read my book, but if you've seen my book, and I feel like your job is what I should have done instead of all these internships, because I mean, so you mentioned a few, you worked at Disney, one of my dreams, you worked at LAX and you most recently, the article that popped up on my feed that I had to just basically buy a subscription so I could read it was about this summer. I think it was this summer that you were a con- an Ibiza concierge or Ibiza, if you're listening to this from the UK, uh, uh, for like collectionist, collectionist, is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. So most of the time, most of these, we've been doing them for about six, seven years and it's a seasonal column. And uh, we've usually done them in the United States. And because this summer was just explosive international travel, and so many Americans are heading to Ibiza. Well, Ibiza. <laughs> I never get tired of saying it like that. I know I sound very obnoxious, but I really love it. Go on. <laughs> we thought, you know, it'd be really fun to just drop me in the center of all the action. And again, we usually try to do a luxury hospitality twist because Pursuits is sort of our luxury uh, column at Bloomberg. So I worked for a high-end clubbing concierge service that will put you front and center at the best tables, at the best clubs in Ibiza, you know, for a casual 25,000 euros. Everything about this article was amazing. You are a brilliant writer in addition to exploring. And I just, I have to read this one This one piece that I just pulled out. This is from your your piece. One night, I thought I was coordinating a chill sunset dinner at El Silencio, a beach club, until it evolved, devolved into a raunchy cabaret complete with naked dancers. I even found myself accidentally partying on my day off when I discovered the brownie in my innocent-seeming ice cream sundae was stuffed with psychedelics. I mean, the drama's just there. Is it 
Are, are all of the ones you've done, have they been this crazy? Like, are, is the story just coming? You don't even have to really, it just, it comes to you? Or, you know, was this one of the more mm, ad, adventurous? Mm, I don't know what the right word to use for that is. Yeah, devolving into naked dancers. I mean, this sounds like it was one of the most wild, but maybe they're all wild. This one was kind of tricky to write because you go to the island and you know what you're getting into and you're it's all a very self-selecting crowd of club goers. So the challenge for this was not to say that the sky was blue. You know, I didn't need to tell everyone that people were doing drugs. So from a writing perspective, it, it was actually really challenging. Mm. When you go to a place like Barney's and your personal shopper, you expect a certain level of decorum. So any deviation from the norm is salacious and fun, but everything in Ibiza is like party raunchy already. So trying to find those extra things to unpack and reshape uh, proved to be trickier than usual. I actually think the nuts and bolts of how things like this work is pretty fascinating. I mean, for obvious reasons, I'm obsessed with different jobs and how they work, but actually like what an average day looks like and what people do do on their days off. You know, I mean, the crazy stories are amazing, but it's also just pretty interesting to hear the mundanities of the job because this is a job that people do. And Apparently, people do it in the summer and they make enough for the whole year, is what you were saying in the piece. It's true. And I would say, you know, behind the scenes, I have two editors at Bloomberg, and one is my angel and one is my devil. And <laughs> the editor is the one who's interested in exactly what you're saying. Um, systems. I'm really interested. I want to like take apart the clock and see how all the cogs move. That to me is really fascinating. And then I have an editor who used to be. It's sort of a page six type editor and wants all those blind items of celebrities acting badly. Um, and I think it strikes a really good balance to have those two editors on my shoulder. One being like systems, what's the everyday life? And the other being like, tell me about the terrible thing Blake Lively did. I love it. And it's, it is these crazy headlines that are what kept me down the rabbit hole. So your devil editor is doing a really good job of producing those. It's like, I live to tell the tale after doing this, you know, whatever, whatever it was. Oh God, there was one, I think it was your super yacht experience. I was like, or like what, what nobody knows about flying a private jet. I don't know. Everything, everything I read, I was just, I wanted to read more and more and more, but let's actually back up because how did, literally, tell me about what you've been doing since college. How did you get into this field of work, which I think a lot of people consider a total dream job? Yeah, you know, it never really was my goal to do investigative journalism. In fact, I still don't really think of myself as a journalist. And uh, it kind of all came sideways. I, You know, going all the way back, even to before college, I'd always been low-key obsessed with travel. I didn't come from a family that was able to afford any travel. And so I signed up. I auditioned to be in an acapella group at Harvard. Oh, uh, yes. That's here. the other running theme of this season so far. <laughs> I have a lot of singers. A lot of singers on this show. And the group that I was in, we did a world tour every summer, and that was super appealing to me. And one of the main reasons why I may have auditioned, and it allowed me the first time to really see the world. And I was with 
uh, you know, we were 12 guys and everyone else on the tour was like, oh yeah, I've already been to Rome. I've already been to Sydney. Like, oh, I have an aunt that lives in so-and-so. You know, I grew, I grew up in a small town in Canada. All my uncles lived on the same street as me. <laughs> so everywhere we went, I was just in awe. And I came back from that trip being pretty sure that I wanted my life to have travel in it in a full-time capacity. And I think as a lot of our peers, you know, went on to do consulting and different things like that after college, I was trying to figure out what's the step that I can skip to making all of that banking money. Cause I'm going to spend it on travel anyway. Correct. So how- <laughs> Very sensible. Without all of the banking. And my first job out of college was at the Louvre in Paris. I was a history of art and architecture uh, major, concentrator, as we say at Harvard. And so I worked at the Louvre for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, as the French do, I had nine weeks vacation uh, one summer, went backpacking in Australia, bought a Lonely Planet guide, and it was kind of just like, I could do this. I could write this guide. I applied for a job at Lonely Planet and, you know, prayed to the travel gods and got a job at Lonely Planet writing guidebooks for them. Flash forward about a decade and 40 books later, felt like social media was changing the atmosphere of how people were traveling and people were moving to digital, no longer analog guides, moved to New York City got into the magazine world and started focusing my storytelling less on unpacking entire destinations, but more on the people in the destinations, Mm -hmm. a cool person doing a cool thing. And then that started to evolve with a column at Bloomberg. And I do a lot of writing for uh, Vogue magazine, Connie Nast Traveler, Travel and Leisure, Washington Post, that kind of thing. Do you mostly take these trips alone? I do. I find that in the travel world, it's it can be a bit complicated. And there's sort of two types. There are people that really see it as work and research. Uh, and then there's others that see it as lifestyle. Mm-hmm. There's travelers who write and there's writers who travel. Ooh, which one are you? It's a really good question. I'm, I'm a traveler who writes uh, because I still don't think of myself wholly as a as a journalist. And a lot of the writers who are doing um, a lot of the biggest work in uh, in the travel sphere in the United States rose the ranks within a magazine, did the internship, were the assistant editor, editor, da-da-da-da. So they're maybe the writer first. Mm-hmm. And I find that I like to be alone when I travel because you give off talk to me energy. <laughs> Not everybody gives off talk to me energy, I think, when they're alone, when they travel. So that's what I was going to, I was going to ask, you know, do you meet people? Do you get lonely? Like, what do you, you know, what do you do when you're with your own thoughts for so long? This is like a general life question, actually. <laughs> I think that it can be applied to people even who are traveling for themselves and and don't, you know, aren't writing or anything like that. For me, uh, when I was doing Lonely Planet guides, you know, I'd be away for four months myself in the wilds of Borneo or something, but I always had a mission to keep me company. I always, I was always researching the book, so I never felt alone because there was always a mission. And I think that if you're someone who's considering solo travel and you're feeling a little bit hesitant because you're worried about those in-between moments of loneliness or 
having dinner alone is outside of your comfort zone. Give yourself a mission. It can, and then just a mission for you. You know, I'm going to write three pages in my notebook every day about my experience. And that mission is what keeps you company while you're on the road. I love it. Do you, okay. I have so many questions. One, do you go, do you just go and eat alone? Do you bring a book? Do you just sit and chat with people? Like, I'm very interested in this strategy. I've done, I've done all of the above. I once had an entire tasting menu alone because my husband got horrible food poisoning and I was not willing to give up our reservation. So I just sat there eating like 12 courses by myself. It was a great night, actually. Uh, I didn't have a book that time. Sometimes I bring a book. Do you, what do you do? What's your, what's your strategy? I very famously always take a book on all of my trips that I will never read. I, <laughs> it's my doorstop book. Perfect. I I never read it. I never open a page, but I always have this lofty goal. Like this is a book I've been wanting to read for a long time. I'm going to bring it with me and I'm going to have all of this free tra- free time on my trip to sit down and like never, not a page, not a paragraph. And you could always use it to start a fire if you get stuck somewhere. So actually, that's not the worst idea. Hold the door open, you know, when I need to roll my luggage through the door. Have I done long protracted dinners on my own? Absolutely. All the time. I was in Wales last year for a feature for Bloomberg. And I had been doing some research and thought this restaurant in Asir was just seemed really special. And the chef and his partner were doing some really innovative things. Uh, and so I had booked an interview with them. And it just so happened the day that I booked that interview, they won Best Restaurant in the UK. Oh my God. <laughs> it was such a wonderful moment of serendipity. And I stayed to have dinner at 30, I think it's 38 courses, oh five hours. And I was alone. And um, I try not to have my phone out. I want to absorb the atmosphere. Yeah. I th- Phones sort of suck the energy out of a restaurant. But in in hour three or four, the situation was desperate. You need it. You needed it. <laughs> just, a little, just a little bit of Instagram scrolling. That is a long time to be alone and eating. <laughs> was I was just in Singapore for a story for Bloomberg for a month. And I, I have some friends in Singapore. And I had a lot of dinner meetings and such. But yeah, it, there was like a, a full week of every night I was doing uh, pretty long, you know, you know, those restaurants that it's like dinner theater, like every oh, yeah. bent and the laying. Here is the light. We're bringing in the lamb that you're going to eat later. Please pet it. <laughs> it was that. And uh, yeah, it can, it can get pretty, you know, dinner is a something that should always be shared. I think, you know, the yeah. eating is something that should be shared with people you care about, you know, breaking bread. So, uh, so it can be a little tricky sometimes. It's a good tip. I mean, I think actually bringing a book you're never going to read, but also sometimes it's just good to be on your own with your thoughts. Now, is there an assignment you've been asked to do that you've ever said no to? Or is there anything you would say no to or anywhere you would say no to? Ooh, good question. I firmly believe that, you know, when you say, you know, I, I'll i always try something once or some people say I'll always try something twice. That's sort of how <laughs> I feel about uh, travel. I want to go everywhere twice. You learn a lot about yourself going back a second time. You see things you didn't see. 
And also the space between two visits of a trip is a funny way to track your own progress. You know, last time I was in this place staring at this thing, I was different in all of these ways. And the place changes too. I think cities are these breathing organisms that expand and contract and morph. And that is the most annoying thing about travel writing, (laughs) highly perishable information that you're producing, which the moment you push print... It's already out of date. It's like milk. (laughs) Already out of date. So I tend to steer clear of any assignments that have a superlative attached. Within the world of travel, I try to say that I'm a features writer, not a travel writer, which means long narrative stories rather than the top nine infinity pools in Asia. I don't want to write <laughs> those. Just, if, if any of your editors are listening, I would happily take that story of the top nine infinity pools in Asia. Just throwing <laughs> throwing that out there. But I hear what you're saying. You want to tell a story. You want to tell a story. Yeah. So anytime an editor asks me to write something along the lines of the top, you know, the top eight hotels in France, number five will shock you. <laughs> Not gonna okay, but what, is, but what is number five? I got to know now that you just set that up. <laughs> what about a pursuits column? Have you ever been asked to go spend a week working at something that you've said no to? I've been pretty lucky with the pursuits column. We have a running list. It's time to do another one. We kind of bump one up to the top, kind of seeing what we had done last time, finding, you know, a different take for the next one. I have put a few. I'm the one who organizes all of them and bridges the contacts. And I've put a few out towards my editors and they've said no. Interesting. That exciting or this, that, and the other. But luckily, uh, I've been able to kind of pitch each one. You know, they're like, we should do one in Europe. And I'm like, what about like clubbing in Ibiza? And they're like, that's great. Go. So good. And have you ever, have you always completed your whole time? Have you ever left something early? Like it was just, you're like, screw this. I'm out. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is this is between us and everyone who's listening. Exactly. Mom, don't tell anybody. <laughs> One of the uh, jobs that I did was working on the world's biggest cruise ship. And it's a week-long cruise from Fort Lauderdale through the Caribbean back to Fort Lauderdale. And my editor offered for me to exit the vessel on day five in Jamaica if I wanted to tap out early because mm-hmm. I couldn't handle the claustrophobia. <laughs> uh, and I took her up on that offer. <laughs> okay, so it wasn't all the people on the cruise ship. It was the close quarters or both. <laughs> I've been on a number of cruises in my life, so I can sympathize with uh, all of those all of those challenges, usually induced by my family. It's my parents' favorite way to travel. I think it's socially claustrophobic. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm going to go back and read that story now when we're done with this call. All right, we have to talk about your book because... I think it's it's almost a testament to the storytelling element of what you do and that it's not always just about a place, but about a place and a time and the people because your book is fascinating. It was described, so the book is called The Far Land. It was described by the New York Times Book Review as, and this is so good, a mashup of an 18th century adventure novel and the darkest episode of Law & Order Special Victims Unit imaginable, which if that doesn't sell a million copies, I don't know what is. It takes place on, is it Pitkern? Because I actually looked up pronunciation. Did I say that right? Yeah. 
Pitcairn Island. Tell me a little bit about the book, how you became obsessed with this place and these people and these incredible stories. And uh, how did it come about? Yeah, you know, so it started as a magazine assignment. And oftentimes when I get back from a trip, I'll have a phone call with my agent and he'll, you know, say, you know, what's been going on for the last couple months? Where have you been? And I got back from Pitcairn Island, which is an island in the South Pacific, halfway between Tahiti and Easter Island to sort of give you an idea of where we are in the world. And I got back and I started talking to him about my experience on this island, which has 48 inhabitants and can only be reached by a cargo freighter because it is too for an airplane to land on. And he, he said to me, that's a book. That's a book. And he's he'd never said that before. You know, 135 countries later, wow. uh, he's said that about any destination. And it really was the not only because the people who live on the island today are so fascinating and so removed from the rest of the world, but because the history of the island and how it was settled 200 years ago is equally, if not more, fascinating. It was basically settled by a group of fugitives escaping the British crown. And they found this island that had never been charted on a nautical map and burned their vessel and then hid on the island for almost 20 years until they were accidentally discovered in an American whaling vessel. And uh, the story has been covered many times, and you've may, may heard of the mutiny on the bounty, but no one has really written with accuracy, with nonfiction accuracy, about what occurred after the mutiny. That's sort of where the narrative has always stopped. And that's largely because no one has accounted for oral tradition, oral storytelling, in, which is Tahitian history books. And so I started collecting um, all of the oral history, along with, you know, old documents that I found through successive trips to Australia, where a lot of the documents are now held, and kind of put it all together of this very uh, Lord of the Flies, very survivor TV show about how one by one they were all murdered uh, until only one was left, basically. It's like one of these, you can't make this up, like, it's so insane. You can't make it up. Like, that's crazy. You know what we're going to say? Everyone in the in the narrative, the thing that I loved the most about telling the story was that everyone's a little bit bad. <laughs> that's a good story. I love that there's some characters that you're really rooting for, and then they show their true colors, or they just, they end up being so wickedly human and doing something that you're just like, we were rooting for you. <laughs> And that that's what was so fun is these flawed, these deeply flawed people all trying to make a go of it on this island. Has it made you want to write another book or was that your magnum opus? <laughs> I it's funny was when you write, especially when I was writing at Lonely Planet under such an insane deadline, you would make kind of a little goal list. These are the 10 things that I want to accomplish in this Lonely Planet guide. And it would be a big win if you'll never believe number five. five. And if you got like eight out of 10, that was a win. And uh, and so when I set out to do this book, 
I I was like, you know, if I could do eight of the 10 things that I set out to do, I'll be really happy. And I, I feel like I got the 10 because wow. I wrote it during the deep dark of the pandemic when there really was nothing else to do. And I could put all of my attention on it. So I was really, really happy with how it turned out. And I think the big goal was that it could be read two ways. One, as just a sudsy, like... Game of Thrones, everyone ensemble action, da 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 da, and then the other ways you can see these there are these Easter eggs and there are these double meanings and there's all this like hidden foreshadowing. And if you want to do a closer read, you can. I would love to write something else. I was in love with these characters and the story, so I have to be the next thing that I write about. And my editor asked me that right when I started. And um, she was just like, how in love with you are are you with Picaren? And I said, oh, deeply in love. She's like, good, because you're going to hate it. By the <laughs> <laughs> And did you? No. And she would check it, it on me. wrong. <laughs> still loving it. I'm not loving the writing, but I'm still loving yeah. my characters. Well, that's she- extraordinary. I, I mean, this conversation has been amazing. I... I cannot let you leave without a few burning travel questions I need you to answer that came through from some folks on the internet and some that I've just always wanted to ask. And I'm using this as an excuse to ask them of you. So are you ready for my five burning travel questions? I would love to hear them. Okay. Number one, the Mediterranean is too hot in the summer now. Where can I go for a climate change proof beach vacation? Great question. I actually just wrote an article about this in Vogue. Teeing that up really well. (laughs) And I swear this was not planned in advance. I did not know this question. Um, I would recommend the beaches of Denmark. Ooh. Yeah. Say more. Yeah. So there's um, coastal Denmark uh, across from Norway. If you're looking at the map, just know where Norway sort of scoops down. There's an area that's called Cold Hawaii and great surfing, beautiful little beach towns, and already the cultural sustainability is in place. You can't just cottage anywhere. Only Danes are allowed to own property. Nice. It's not going to ever get overexposed and overdeveloped. Um, and there's beautiful national park with wild animals and great little restaurants with fresh seafood. And in the summer, you know, it gets up to 28 degrees uh, Celsius. So. All right, I'm sold. That's close for me. I could I could almost row over there basically from here. You could fly internationally into Aalborg and then you're going to drive about an hour. That sounds amazing. All right, question two. To check a bag or not to check a bag? That is the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's been really tricky lately uh, with all luggage getting lost and flights delayed and people putting those little Apple trackers. (laughs) I love checking a bag. (laughs) You can bring what you want. You don't get shoulder problems trying to carry it on the plane. You're not in a rush to be the first person to board to get that slot over your seat. I am all for checking a bag to the point where I think we should be able to check our bags for free and you should pay to put your bag over. You have to do that now, actually. In Europe, on the short hauls, it's cheaper to put your bag under and check it than it is to put it in the plane. 
I like, I want more of that. Because They're onto your strategy. <laughs> see, when they board an airplane, like they need to get on first or the, some, their brain's going to explode. And I think I know. This it's very stressful, but it's, it's, it's definitely stress-free. All right. I'll think about that. I don't often check a bag, but it's not a bad idea. I usually want to bring back liquids from wherever I'm going. So I think I need to probably do it a bit more. All right. Number three, what do you think is the most overlooked place that tourists don't go, but should? I'll give you general and uh, specific. I think everywhere that you think is the golden place with the thing, you like Italy, the food, oh my gosh, you know, uh, Tahiti, the beaches, you know, these places that are sort of synonymous with one item and you feel like you can't get it anywhere else. There is a place that's doing it just as well without the crowds and cheaper. I promise you. Everywhere, there's something that is not as fully discovered. Iceland, super overexposed. Mm -hmm. Northern Norway, far less exposed. But I think one of the biggest overlooked destinations is Slovenia. Okay. It borders Italy, and a lot of Slovenian wine used to be Italian uh, vineyards, uh, but after the First World War, uh, it was redrawn uh, where the border was. So a lot of people that live in that area are sort of culturally Italian, where they're smoking their own meats and they're making their own cheeses and making their own pasta, and you're getting all of that, but you're on you're in Slovenia, so it doesn't have the name check, and the mountains are incredible. Uh, the people are so friendly. It's such a small country and it's super easy to get around. I, I'm just shocked that it hasn't exploded yet, but I think it will. My daughter was obsessed with the uh, Slovenian entry to this year's Eurovision. So I actually think I could propose that trip and get away with it. That sounds amazing. Um, all right. Well, now I'm starving and want to drink wine and also go on vacation. Okay. You've got yourself, you said you want to go everywhere twice. So that's a big list. But where do you go back to again and again? That's another great question. Every year I have this tacit promise to myself that I will go to Japan and France. And I always try my best to get Iceland uh, on that list as well. I lived in Japan for a while. Um, I have a lot of dear friends there. It's just a really special place to me. I worked on the Lonely Planet Guide to Japan and spend a few months there every year. I usually spend the end of the year there. So I'm gearing up to spend a few months there now. And France is why I lived there while I was working at the Louvre. I lived there for about four years. Uh, I'm French-Canadian. So just is an easy kind of feels like my cousins who make fun of me because, you know, (laughs) Canadians. And I just, I I really enjoy the lifestyle there. And Iceland, I used to write the Lonely Planet Guide to Iceland. And that is just, you know, the ultimate in hiking and getting away from the tourist circuit. There's so many incredible things to see. Oh my God. All right. The final question, the eternal question, how do I score cheap airline tickets? This is not a very good question, but do you ever, should I skip that question? My other question was going to be, do you need an intern because I'm available? You can answer either of those questions, actually. (laughs) That was something that somebody asked. I think people are always trying to score cheap airline tickets. 
wherever they go. I wish I knew how to play the points game. Uh, I am in awe of friends who know how to get a new credit card and get the points. And that seems to be the best way to do it. Reading up on... Uh, there are 500 websites that will tell you how to play the points game. And that truly is the best way to do all of the cheap flights and free flights yeah. and hells. And Hyatt seems to have the best value if you're trying to do the hotel game. I am always a way for different assignments on different airlines. And it's really hard for me to put all of my points in one place um, and if I have to use a company credit card. So for me, it's a bit of a mess. But if I had the time, I would invest it in figuring out the points. Maybe there are frequent boater miles to be had uh, for that ferry freighter ship to pick her and you never know. You'd probably be like a platinum member by now. Brandon, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to catch up with me and everybody else who's listening. And I'm just so excited. The Farland is out now. You can get it everywhere books are sold and it is brilliant. And please read Pursuits and like maybe block off three or four hours to just go down the whole history because there's no way you're going to be able to stop once you start. Thanks so much for tuning in today to Extra Shot with Alicia Fernandez-Miranda. A special shout out to the team at Texture Sound for all their support. If you're in the mood for more of me, pick up a copy of my What If Year, which is out now in bookstores everywhere. Sign up for my mailing list on aliciafmiranda.com or find me on Instagram at aliciafmiranda. I can promise news, views, and memes about Gilmore Girls. If you have feedback, ideas for upcoming segments, burning questions, things you need advice on, please reach out. And otherwise, we'll catch you on the next Extra Shot.